0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're continuing our way through the gospel of Matthew, and we come to a parable today that talks, Jesus presents the end of days, and using a parable to describe it, he refers to it as if it's like being caught in a net. So we're talking about hell today, and before we jump into the text, I just want you to know that. With regards to heaven and hell, the scriptures tell us a few things about heaven, but for the most part, it's like God wants it to be a surprise. There are good things in heaven. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we're going there, and he tells us just enough so that we know it's going to be awesome, but some of the finer details he keeps a secret. With regards to hell, the scriptures are much more explicit. Because what God is attempting to do through the Word is to help us to understand that there's no mystery, there's no surprise. You need to understand just how horrific it really is so that you will be warned to trust in Christ. The Scriptures talk about hell twice as much as they talk about heaven, and there is no mystery. We're going to get into this text today, and I'm going to say some very basic things, and it will be very, very difficult for us to hear I want you to know, though it doesn't seem like it, that I've attempted to sugarcoat this thing as much as possible. Because as we encounter the truth of hell, it is difficult, it is challenging. You will think I'm a liar at the end. I'm not going to tell you all that the scripture says about hell. I'm just going to give you the basics. I'm going to be faithful to the text. I'm going to be faithful to the Word of God. I'm going to present it to you. But there are many, many more things which could be said which I don't, I will refrain from saying today. If you are an individual who recoils at the thought of hell, my prayer is that as we look at this text, you would come to understand the reality of judgment, the fact that there is coming a fixed point in time that has already been determined by the sovereignty of God, in which every person in this room will face one of two fates, It's going to happen. You will either be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven or you will stand before the great judge of all judges and you will be condemned for your sins and you will be sent to hell. That's going to happen to all of us, one of those two fates. That's the reality of what we're facing. And so as we look at this text this morning, the question that you need to be asking yourself in your mind is, which of those two fates am I facing right now? Look with me. We'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. And then here's the interpretation. Here's what Jesus is saying. Verse 49, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, as we have looked at your word, as we have looked at your Son, speak to us in parables these last several years weeks, Lord, we've, we've learned that the kingdom of heaven, that your son's reign, that his dominion is like a pearl of great price. We've learned, Father, that you have purposes for us as your people in this world, mixed as we are the good with the bad. We've learned, Lord, that your kingdom is unstoppable, it's unconquerable, it is coming, that it will, it will come on this earth, and there is no stopping it. And Father, as we look this morning at the reality for those who reject your kingdom, who reject your son, and who refuse to have his rule, his reign in their life. Lord, I just pray that the truth of this heavy passage would weigh on us. That for those of us who are here today who may not know you, that it would scare us as it should. That it would scare us into your loving arms. That we would seek your salvation. Father, I pray last but most of all for those of us who do know you that the reality of this text would compel us to do everything we can to let everyone we know know the truth. There is a judgment. There is a just judge. And these things should lead us, Father, to embracing the mercy of your Son. And I pray, God, that Bridge Baptist Church would be a people who would proclaim that. Open our eyes to see, Lord, we pray your spirit would shine upon the text, that we would be able to understand what is being said to us today. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. As a child, we had a sort of a thicket, it was a sort of a, a, an empty, barren sort of pasture behind my house and my twin brother and I would go out into these woods, and and there were several clumps, several real, real dense thickets that sort of had these cedar bushes kind of Clustered around, and it had these tall oak trees in the middle, and you could kind of push your way through these cedar bushes, these cedar trees into the interior and It was sort of like a little fort you know it was sort of walled around by cedar bushes, and on the inside there were branches and things like this and We determined one day we 're going to turn one of these thickets into our personal fort, so we went in with loppers and clippers, and we clipped out all the brush and all the scrub and so we had a nice oak canopy over top, and we were walled in thick all around with cedar bushes, and we had a nice play area. One day, as we came to what we considered to be our personal property, our fort, we discovered the remains of what could only be other children that had been playing there, and we determined that this injustice must not stand. (laughs) Now, as an eight-year-old enterprising young man, my twin brother and I got together, and we thought, "Hmm, what can we do to make this Not a safe place for other people to come to sort of keep them away. And we decided we would rig up a series of booby traps. Now you need to understand we're eight years old. If you can recall your life as an eight year old, how many booby traps did you rig up that were successful? (laughs) Zero is the number I'm coming up with. So we decided we were going to rig up some booby traps, not ever expecting that anyone would seriously be hurt by one of these things. We started to dig. Our first plan was to dig a pit and then put sharpened stakes in the bottom that you would fall on them. Now, this is Texas, y'all. In honor of Cowboy Festival, I'm going to use my Texas lingo. This is Texas, y'all. You get down about six inches and you hit limestone, okay? You're not actually digging a pit in Texas. just want to put your minds at ease. There are no basements in Texas. They can't get down that far. You dig down about six inches, you hit limestone, you hit bedrock, and then you pour your foundation. So it's not like here where everybody has a basement that's you know submerged, you just can't get in the soil like that in Texas. But we thought we could. So we dug down, we hit the limestone, and after about two weeks of going out every every day after school and picking away at this, we said, you know what, this is hopeless, it'll never work. So we decided how could we improve upon this pit and make it somewhat scary? We thought, hmm, hmm, a person will step in this pit, we'll cover it over with legs and twigs, and they'll start to fall the six inches to the limestone but they will think that it's much, much further, and then they will reach out to try and grab something as they think they're falling, right? Makes sense? So we devised an improvement to our original booby trap. We decided to take a log and sharpen one end of it and perch it in the oak tree canopy overhead in in a fork in the branch, and we tied the rope to the end of the log such that when the person stepped on what he considered to be firm ground and then began to fall the six inches into the limestone below, he'd reach out, he'd grab the rope hanging there to save himself, and he would yank the log that had the sharpened end on one end of it, and it would fall down and hit him in his head. Please have grace, okay? (laughs) Okay. Like I said, you don't ever, as an eight-year-old boy, devise booby traps thinking that they're going to actually work. It's half play. It's most entirely play. So we did this. We chopped a log. We sharpened it. We perched it in the tree, and we were like, yes, this is awesome. We tested it a little bit. Yeah, like, it, if you get, yeah, it looks, it was a huge amount of effort to get this thing up into the tree, so we didn't want to actually set it off, but we just kind of pulled on it. Yeah, it's kind of teetering up there. It looks like it could really come down. We were like, awesome, now we have a booby trap. And now our fort is secure. So we continued on with our play after many, many weeks of grueling effort. Well, guess what happened? One day as we were playing, my brother, who built the booby trap and helped devise it and was intimately knowledgeable of all of its fine inner workings, stepped in the pit, freaked out as he was falling, what he knew, if he'd stopped to think about it, only six inches, grabbed the rope, Yanked the rope, stopped, and I was standing about five feet from him when it happened. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. And there was that moment of, is it gonna work? (laughs) And it did work. It comes crashing down and he looks up and he sees this thing falling down on his head and he looks at me and I'm looking up and I look at him and there's this moment in time where we make eye contact and I can only describe that that moment as having two primary sensations. One, oh no, for you. I'm so sorry for what's about to happen. And then the second emotion, sort of a combination of satisfaction and elation. You know, yes, it's working. It's working. There, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was somewhat happy that for once in my life, I devised a contraption that actually worked like it was supposed to. It was my first successful invention. And sure enough, the log came down, sadly, and it hit my brother in the head, knocked him cold, gashed his, uh, gashed his scalp, he was rushed to the emergency room and treated for concussion, and he had to have, you know, 12 stitches put into, put into his head. He lived to tell the story, okay, like he's okay, he's successful, he has a career in the Coast Guard, you know, and, and uh, he's, he's gone on to live a happy life. <laughs> I just want you to know no ultimate harm, no, no lasting harm came from that. Now... I want you to understand that moment. When my brother yanked on that rope, something inevitable was set in motion that was going to come crashing down on his head. And he looked up and he saw it coming. I looked up, I saw it coming. And we looked at each other and we locked eyes for just the briefest of seconds before the log came crashing down, And in that moment, that moment where I was thinking, oh no. This is the reality of what was going through both of our minds in that moment. He was powerless to escape. And I was helpless to save him. And in that brief moment when you know what's coming... And you know there's nothing you can do about it. And you know that there's nothing anyone else can do about it. That is a moment of horror. And what I want some of you in here to understand today, and for those of you who are listening to the podcast, we are right now in that moment, you and I. Something terrific and horrible is coming. You're going to see it when we look at the word of God today. You are powerless to escape, and I am helpless to save you. But this is the truth of our situation. It is coming, and so we must face it. Look at what Jesus says here. He concludes his teaching. It's coming to an end, this this section of parables. Parables. And as we've looked, we've, we've noticed that there are four types of soil. We've noticed that there's this parable of the wheat and the weeds, and it's focusing on the nature that evil and good coexist in this world and that God has purposes for his good people, continuing to live and dwell amongst evil people. And he talked about that, and he gives an interpretation of that. Following that parable, there's this parable of the mustard seed and the leaven and the fact that God's kingdom is coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It is coming on this earth a series of events have been set in motion starting all the way back at the beginning of time finding its truest deepest significance in the birth the ministry the death the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those things together tell us that there is an end to all of that that is coming which none of us can escape it it's like a mustard seed it's like leaven in yeast yeast leaven in flour these things are going to come to a fulfillment. There is no denying it. And then he talks about the kingdom of heaven for those who belong to Jesus. He says it's a pearl of great value. It's an infinitely precious thing that we should be pursuing, that we should be chasing after. He talks about it as though it's a treasure, that it was a man that just sort of happened across it, startled upon it in a field, and that it is something very, very precious and very, very valuable. And now he's looking at it from the other side those individuals who are not going to make it. And he makes this statement. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Jesus is teaching in Galilee. He's teaching in the region in which fishing would have been a predominant source of income. It's the major industry. Most everybody in this neck of the woods is going to be involved in fishing. But if you're a Jew, and even if you're a Jew engaged in the industry of fishing, this idea of casting a net always has negative connotations. When Jesus tells parables, he's drawing on Old Testament imagery. And what's fascinating is when he talks about harvest, when he talks about gathering in the wheat, these are things to the agrarian mindset of the Jew that are happy things. You want to get all that wheat into your barns. You want to gather all that stuff together. And so if you're hearing those parables, it's not necessarily striking you with the same force of horror as this particular parable would. When Jesus starts off, even though the individuals he's talking to are engaged in fishing, when he begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven and compare it to a fishing net, the Old Testament background to this imagery is always negative. There's a couple of verses uh, going to be up on the screen behind me. I'm going to read to you two of them. The first is from Ecclesiastes 9:12. Man does not know his time like fish That are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. That's from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Solomon, apart from Christ, the wisest man who has ever lived, talks about the fact that we're all going to be snared. And the image that he uses is a fishing net, a dragnet. Habakkuk 1 13 to 15, the prophet speaking of God, makes the statement, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind, notice this, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them all out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. He rejoices and is glad. The scriptures talk about the fact that God is casting a net. When we're talking about harvesting wheat, wheat is just a plant, but fish are meant to live in the water, and they're creatures. They swim around, and they, they have a life down there, and, and we're going to eat these things, and so we cast out our net. And we're going to haul them out of their natural environment. And they're going to be killed. This is an image of judgment. And it is the image that Christ is employing here in this particular passage. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. Sagene is the Greek word that is used here. It's a dragnet, just like what we saw back in Habakkuk. It's a net that would have had a series of floats on top so that the top part of the net would have floated on the water and it would have had rocks or some other heavy element tied to the bottom of the net so that the bottom of the net would sink all the way down as far down as as it could go. And it would be pulled between two boats that would start off somewhere out in the middle of the lake and begin working their way back to the shore. And everything in the path of those two boats, as they rowed back to shore, they would have this drag net stretched between these two ships these two boats, and they would row back to shore and everything would eventually be caught in between these two boats into that dragnet. And Jesus, speaking to Galileans, speaking to individuals who predominantly made their living on the sea, would have been intimately familiar with this imagery and with their cultural background would have been bothered and horrified to be told that the kingdom of heaven, God's reign on this earth, can be compared to a fish a fisherman making his catch. They drag it in, verse 48, when it is full, they drew it ashore and they sat down and they sorted the good into containers which they will then sell and the bad they just threw away. Verse 49, so it will be at the close of the age. Age is a reference to time. At the close of this age, In a metaphorical sense, God is going to cast his net over humanity and rope us all in. There's no escaping it. There's no getting around it. There's no getting out of it. When he makes the statement in verse 49, so it will be at the close of the age, there is a fixed point in time coming for all of us. There's no getting out of it. And that moment of time, every day that passes, every sunset, every sunrise, we draw closer and closer inevitably to that fixed moment, all of us. He makes a statement, the angels will come and they will separate the evil from the righteous, they will sort the good from the bad. And he concludes with the statement, The bad, verse 50, they will throw into the fiery furnace. In that place, the fiery furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you will, if you end up there, you will be in tears, you will be in pain. You will be in torment, there will be crying and screaming and wailing and tears and pain such that you're gnashing and grinding your teeth in agony. Reading on this this week, a number of commentators point out as they, you know, you read these systematic theology books and, you know, it's always at the end of the book, it's like this is the last topic anybody wants to talk about, so it comes at like page 1,000. I was reading John Frame, whom I greatly respect and admire and and deeply appreciate his scholarship. And he makes this statement, which I find to be common amongst many theologians. If I were to invent my own religion, this is his statement, if I were to invent my own religion, I can assure you that there would be no place in it for a hell. Now what Dr. Frame is attempting to do with that comment is to sort of Show you that he also doesn't like the idea of a hell. I want you to know that I'm with him. I don't like the idea of a hell. Say, well, that's great, but what does God think of it? God doesn't like the idea of a hell. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it makes the statement, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in anyone dying. God does not want any of us to die. He doesn't want any of us to go to hell. He doesn't take any pleasure. He doesn't derive any satisfaction from any of us going to hell. In Timothy 2, again, Paul speaking on this same topic through the inspiration of the Spirit, makes the statement that God does not want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to die, but he desires that all, notice those two key phrases, I don't want anyone, that includes everyone, I don't want anyone to die, and I want everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus. That's what Paul says about God in Timothy 2. So whether you look Old Testament, Ezekiel 18, or whether you look New Testament, Timothy 2, both places God is described as an individual who doesn't take pleasure in hell. But where we have to disagree with John Frame and other theologians is we're not inventing our own religion here. And in the actual faith that is, though even God Himself does not take pleasure and does not delight in hell, it's there and it's real, which means if God doesn't want any of us to go to hell and if he takes no pleasure in the death of people go and got dying and going to hell, then the responsibility ultimately does not lie with God. The responsibility ultimately for people who do go to hell lies with those individuals who go there. God is not a God that is just up in heaven just looking with glee to crush any person to destroy any man. He takes no pleasure in it. But it's something that has to happen. You see, we live in a world that is marked and stained with sin. We live in a world that is filled with sinners. And the reality is, for every crime you have committed, for every sin you have done, there is a penalty which must be paid, and we are all guilty of it. The Scriptures talk very clearly in the book of Romans. It says, all have sinned. All of us have sinned. Every person in this room, every single one of us, every person in the world, all over the world, throughout all time, with one exception, Jesus. We have all sinned, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we are all deserving of the wages of sin, which the verse goes on to talk about, the payment, the penalty for sin, is that we all deserve to die and to go to hell, all of us. Which means that all of us, at some point in time, have lived life with the reality that as we lived our, di- our days, there was a net being dragged along behind us. It is something that is coming. It is real. You are powerless to escape it. And I am helpless to save you. There are four things we need to know about hell. Four essential truths to boil it down to four basics. There's lots of things that could have been said, but there are four things, in order to be faithful to the text, there are four things which I feel must be said. Number one, hell is a place of unrelieved misery and torment. Unrelieved misery and torment. In Luke 16, don't flip there, just listen, Jesus tells a story of Father Abraham and a rich man. Father Abraham dies, he goes to heaven, obviously the rich man who isn't named, he dies and he goes to hell. And the story talks about when this rich man was in hell, he was in anguish, and he was in torment, and he looked to Father Abraham and he said, Father Abraham, I am in anguish, I am in torment, would you please just dip your finger in a cup of water? It didn't even have to be cold water, just lukewarm water would suffice, and if you could just Come over and put one drop of water on my tongue. I would be so grateful. It makes the statement here in Luke 16, 23 to 24, and being in hell, being in torment. It makes the exact statement there, being in torment. He lifted his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in this flame. So it's a place of torment. It's a place of misery. It's a place of anguish. It's a place where you experience physical and spiritual suffering. You are tormented in your soul and you are tormented in your body. That's the other thing you need to know. Point number two, it is not just disembodied spirits that are experiencing spiritual torment. There is something unique about us as creatures created by God. We have both a spiritual aspect to us as well as a physical aspect to us. A spiritual side, the soul is obviously the higher of the two, but the body is the temple that houses the soul, the physical body. And so even though the soul is the real you, your body is also the real you. You're never, you were never intended by God to experience the agony of death and to experience the separation of your soul from your body. That comes about as a result of sin. The way that God originally created us and his intention for us is that we would be souls spirits created in the image of God housed in a physical body and when we die we all experience the separation of the soul from the body those who have faith in Christ go to heaven and those who do not have faith in Christ (laughs) go to hell but everyone both those in hell and those in heaven Are ultimately to be reunited with an eternal body. It makes this statement in Revelation chapter 20, talking about the end of days, talking about the eternal state. The Bible says, the prophet John, as the Spirit is moving him, says, "...I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed." Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life. Now he's using symbolic language. They were living in heaven. But when he says they came to life, he's talking about the fact that they came back to a resurrected body. To make it clear, he goes on, this is the first resurrection, the first resurrection in which your body and your soul are reunited. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first re- resurrection, over such the second death has no power. Let's give a little bit further down, and he makes the statement, then I also saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So this is a terrifying moment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before this throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the Lamb's book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were all judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. If anyone's name was not found written In the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As John had alluded to previously in the chapter, this is the second death. Hell, the lake of fire, however you want to refer to it, is a place where you are tormented and you are in misery and you experience torment in both soul and body. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus makes the statement, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Which means that as we confront the world around us, as we experience the world around us, the thing which should most scare us is not the world around us, Their power to harm us is limited to what they can do to our physical bodies. But God has the capacity to torment both body and soul. So there is a soul and there is a body. What does it look like to have your soul tormented? I imagine, having experienced hell, the soul the torment of that soul would consist of, though the scriptures are not explicit. Thinking over all the days of your life, in which you had an opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to repent of your sins and to accept His forgiveness. And to think that for all those opportunities you had, you put it off to another day, or you said, no, that's not for me, or religion's a crutch, or whatever of the many different reasons that people say no to christ i imagine as you experience physical suffering the spiritual torment of an eternity reflecting upon a brief 60 70 80 years of life and opportunities that you could have taken but chose not to i imagine that is spiritual torment but the scriptures also speak of physical torment In Mark chapter 9, verse 47 to 48, this will be up on the screen, it says, if your eye, Jesus is teaching, and we've seen this before in the Gospel of Matthew, he makes a statement, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So it says, if your eye causes you to sin, if you're drawn into lust. If you're looking at impure things, he says you need to stop that. And he talks about taking radical measures to bring yourself to stopping that. He says, better to go into life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell. And he offers this description, which is a quote from the Old Testament, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. You say, is it True that we have a physical body that experiences torment in hell? I think so. Death in the first century was not as sterilized as it is today. And it wasn't as cosmetically treated as it is today. There were no open casket funerals. And when you died, they might put you into a tomb But your body wasn't embalmed necessarily. They would pack you with spices and things of this nature. But the reality is, when you died, it was unescapable that you would begin immediately to decompose. And and the funerals had to come very, very quickly after death. They would immediately wrap you and start to bury you. The primary problem, apart from the breaking down of tissues and whatnot, and the corpse was... Insects would begin to feast on the body. Maggots and worms. Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, says, you don't want to go to hell where the worm does not die. Now, the horrifying logic of what he is saying is this. When the body is completely decomposed, and the flesh has been totally devoured, there's no more food for the worm to eat, and therefore the worm dies. When he says the dead are thrown into hell where the worm does not die, he's talking about the fact that your body does not decompose, it does not rot away, you do not experience the sweet release of death, the food remains forever, and therefore the worm, which in this life we observe worms eating corpses, they would have no reason to die either. That is a gruesome and horrifying picture of hell. He goes on, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. If you light a body on fire, if you cremate it, eventually it is reduced to ashes and then the fire goes out. But the dead who are resurrected, when they go to hell and they're resurrected bodies, they're capable of experiencing the torment of fire forever because their body does not die and it does not decompose. Which brings me... To my third point. Hell is a place of torment and agony for both soul and physical body in varying degrees. In varying degrees. Most of us look around the room and we say, okay, I've done some things wrong, but let's face it, I'm not like Hitler. I, I don't have like this sort of latent desire to go out and kill someone. You know, I'm not like mad and angry at the world. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good guy. I think that, you know, relatively speaking, if I'm going to put you upside next to Hitler, yeah, you're a pretty good guy. You haven't killed six million people. Congratulations. That was an enormous accomplishment. I'm glad that you managed to restrain yourself for that, that horrific manslaughter. But the problem is that when we talk about people going to hell, we're not comparing ourselves to Hiller. It's not a comparison from one sinful fallen man to the next. The standard is always set by Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who never sinned once, which means that if any of us have fallen short, if any of us have sinned, and the scriptures have already said it emphatically, we all have, then what the Bible is saying is, It doesn't matter that you're not as bad as Hitler. It doesn't matter that you're not as bad as Stalin. It doesn't matter that you don't claim six million deaths to your resume. You're still guilty, which means you're still going to hell. But hell is a place of justice, which means that there are varying degrees of punishment for those who are sent there. It says in Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot The Son of God profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews makes it clear there is a worse punishment for those who reject, who openly defy the grace and the mercy of Christ. But we've also already seen this in Matthew. In chapter 11, in verses 22 and in verse 24, Jesus speaking on Sodom and Gomorrah and Bethsaida and Chorazin, And he makes the statement, if the miracles that were done in Bethsaida and Chorazin had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. I did miracles in Bethsaida and Chorazin, and they got to see me face to face, and they did not repent. And he makes this statement, I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, or Sodom and Gomorrah. Then it will be for you. And he goes on and he reiterates it again in verse 24. I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Meaning that those who go to hell will not all receive the same punishment. Those who all go to hell will not be tormented in the same way. And so now you're thinking, well, I'm shooting for the high rung. You know, if hell is like Dante's Inferno, if there are degrees of hell and Hitler and Stalin and all these bad dictators are on the lowest rung. I don't want Jesus. I don't want to become a Christian, so I'll just try to shoot for, you know, that least painful place. John Gerstner makes the statement, Hell will have such severe degrees of suffering that a sinner, were he able, would give the whole of this world if his sins could have been just one less. Even though there are degrees, you don't even want to experience the least of them. You don't want to go there. You do not want to go to hell. And I'm telling you here and now, the reason you don't want to go to hell, the number one reason, is because it is eternal. It goes on forever. In Matthew 25, Jesus makes the statement, the righteous will go away into eternal life, but the unrighteous into eternal punishment. That word eternity means something that is ageless, that is infinite, that is never-ending. And if we want to grasp and cling and hold on to the truth that there is an eternal, never-ending heaven, if there is an eternal, never-ending paradise, and there's no way to wrap our arms around that kind of an eternity without also simultaneously embracing the eternity that awaits those who do not want Christ to be their king. It goes on forever, which means when you've been there 10 million years, thinking about that brief 60-year 60 w- 60 window of your life in which you could have trusted in Christ, when you've been there 10 million years experiencing the torment of your body, both your body and your soul, all you have to look forward to is 10 million more and 10 million more and 10 million more and 10 million more. more. So four things that you need to know about hell. It is a place of torment and misery of both soul and body in varying degrees that goes on forever and lasts into eternity. You are powerless to escape. I am helpless to save you. But you are not hopeless. This is a penalty we all deserve. And this is a fate that is inescapable and is coming on this world but you are not without hope. Jesus Christ, everything I've just described, the torment, the punishment, the physical anguish, as an infinite person, he experienced all of this to an infinite capacity on your behalf so that you would never have to know the separation of God so that you would never have to experience the horror and the agony of an eternity in hell. Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing the full weight of God's wrath so that you would never have to taste this future. So if you are here and able to hear what I am saying, if you are listening online through the podcast or the website, And you are able to hear what I am saying. You need to know that the only way you escape hell, and it's the only way that anyone escapes hell, and there are many who have placed their faith in Christ who have escaped hell. The only way you do it, the only way you make it out, is if you will repent of your sins trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross as a sufficient satisfaction for the demand of justice. That he paid your penalty so that you would not have to. This penalty. So that you could escape this fate. And if you would believe in that, repent of your sins and walk with Christ and accept his reign in your life you never have to fear this reality. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ for the satisfaction of this penalty, there's no reason to put it off another day. There's no reason to wait another moment. There's no reason ever to think, I'll make this decision tomorrow. Today is the day. This is the moment. And now is the time for you to receive Christ. When my brother fell in the pit and pulled the rope and set in motion the falling log, as we looked at each other and met each other's gaze, He knew he was helpless and powerless and in that particular situation, hopeless. That does not have to be true of you. Look to Jesus. Believe in him. Do it today. And let me see you do it. Don't let that moment be the moment that defines you for an eternity. Let's bow for a word of prayer.